thanks for tuning in to the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. We're a group of sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and here you will hear the Word of God. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It continues to be an honor and privilege to share the Word of God with the Saints of Durban Memorial Baptist Church this morning. A young boy was playing with his dad and they were playing together and he said, Dad, I've decided I'm going to get married. Surprised, the dad answered and said, well, that's wonderful, but you're eight years old. What makes you think it's time? The boy said, well, I found somebody worth marrying. So the father says, okay, what makes you think of that? He says, well, she loves me. She's the best cook. She tells me the best stories. She takes care of me. I know she's not going to hurt me, Dad. Father says, well, that, that's great, son, but who are you talking about? The boy goes, it's grandma. She said she loves me and I love her too. The dad answers, he said, that's nice, but there's a problem there, son. The boy goes, well, what's the problem? Well, son, she happens to be my mother. You can't marry my mother. The boy thought for a second. They looked the father straight in the eye and said, why not? You married mine. Happy Mother's Day <laughs> to all the mothers and motherly figures amongst us this morning. Whenever we come to these types of days, I do want to be sensitive to the fact that not everyone has the best relationship with their mother. It's a sad reality that in the fallen condition of man, not all mothers live up to the calling of motherhood. For others, the weakness of the flesh has made biological motherhood an impossibility. And to you, I want to let you know that you are loved and valued and cherished by the grace of God. And in a healthy functioning church, all women have the opportunity to be a maternal influence on the next generation. And honestly, if we're really thinking about that, you have the command to do so. Know that no matter where you, the feelings this day invokes, that God is good and seek to live a life worthy of the calling that he has given you. I brought up that joke earlier today, not just because it has a funny connection to Mother's Day, but because in the joke, the boy realizes something interesting and pertinent to our look through the book of 1 Samuel. The boy was misguided, obviously, in choosing the grandmother as a wife, but he did see wisdom in seeing the worthiness and uh, uh, that love and care are connected to finding a wife. He, he valued the worth of someone. When, whenever there's a role in our life that is vacant, it's natural and appropriate to find the most worthy candidate to fill the role. Whether we realize it or not, we are constantly asking ourselves in regards to our relationships, is this person worthy? Is this person worthy of my affection? Is this person worthy to give me advice in this moment? Is this person a valid source of instruction? We make these sort of judgments all the time, consistently. But the problem is, we're often terrible at making this kind of judgment. We listen to the wrong voices. We give our affections to people who hurt us. In most of the teen movies in the 90s or the early aughts, they told the story of this girl that was pining for a boy who was dating the evil cheer captain while the protagonist hangs out on the bleachers. One wears high heels, the other wears sneakers, and 
At the end of the movie, the boy wakes up to find that what he was looking for had been here the whole time. But those, those types of tales are told over and over and over again. And we can use that as a, as a, a springboard to get us to a greater reality this morning. The reality is, all of us, whether we knowingly, willingly acknowledge it or not, are looking for someone or something worthy to be our Savior. And we look in all sorts of places. We look to nature. We look to science. We look to another person for a a romantic relationship. We look even deep within ourselves, looking for that thing that will give us that completeness, that saving that we're looking for. We look all over the place trying to find the one thing worthy of our hope and giving of our satisfaction. The problem is, Though we may not see it, though we may keep trying to put a square peg in a round hole, those things will never suffice. They will never be worthy. You see, the deep satisfaction, dissatisfaction that we all seek to rectify comes from our separation from the holy God caused by our sin, as our children's question alluded to this morning. When we seek to rectify that dissatisfaction with other sinful things, we will never be satisfied. Such things are unworthy of such a role. They can't live up to that role. But there is one thing, there is one man who can satisfy. There is one man worthy of being our Savior. That man is Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and there is one Mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is worthy and he is able to do so because he lived a perfectly righteous life, never sinning, not even once, never falling short of the glory of God. And from a place of perfect righteousness, he gave himself as a ransom. You'll see that we, did not, we don't have the verses up there, but if you continue through that section of 1 Timothy, he paid the debt. Owed for whosoever would believe in him when he shed his blood on the cross. When he gave up his life, the iniquities of all who would ever believe in him were laid upon him. He was the chastisement. Our chastisement was laid upon him. He died a death as a substitute, taking the punishment earned for our sins upon himself. Then by the glory of the Father on the third day, up from the grave he arose and his resurrection now assures all who believe in him, those who believe in him, will walk in the newness of life. His death gives justification. His resurrection gives us the hope and the truth of glorification. What couldn't we ask for more in a savior? Who could be more worthy? There is no one. There is nothing. We can look all over, but what we're looking for is right there. The mediator. The only one. There is but one mediator. Christ Jesus. With that in mind, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to be finishing out the chapter 11 today. The beautiful thing about the Old Testament is that God allows us to see his hand working throughout history to accomplish his plan of salvation. 
He also provides us with categories that help us better understand his plan of salvation. We've been looking at that on Wednesday nights. For instance, the kings of Israel that we read about here with King Saul in particular, give us a glimpse of the forthcoming King Jesus. Where we pick up this morning, King Saul has just proven himself to be worthy, at least for the time being, to be the king in Israel. The people of Israel are starting to see and appreciate Saul as the king God installed him to be. As we walk through the text this morning, we'll see how Israel's response to Saul as this worthy earthly king relates to our response to Jesus Christ as ultimately worthy heavenly king of kings. I would like us to pick up four proper responses this morning walking through the text uh, responses to seeing the rightful king as worthy in the response that has on the kingdom so let's look at verse 12 then the people said to Samuel who is it that said shall Saul reign over us bring the men that we may put them to death the first response to seeing the rightful king as worthy is recognizing the folly of rejection. I'll say that again. Recognizing the folly of rejection. In these verses, this verse here, the people are blown away by the success from this battle that just happened between the evil Ammonites and Saul's uh, Israelite army. As we walked through the first part of this chapter last week, we saw that the Israelites and Jabesh-Gilead were up against a fearsome foe, and they didn't know who to turn to. They originally didn't even think about going to Saul for help. From their perspective, Saul uh, uh, just so happened to hear about this problem as they sent messengers all across the land, and Saul just happened to hear it and respond. Now that they've seen him in action, they're beginning to see how foolish it was to not go to the king first. On one side, this is a good sentiment. It was foolish for them to overlook the one whom God called to be king of Israel. But now that they've witnessed salvation at the hands of Saul, they're willing to put all the doubters to death. My, oh my, how things have changed in the land of Israel. Between the worthless men at the end of chapter 10 saying, how is this man going to save us at the end of chapter 10? To this uh, first seven verses of chapter 11, those doubts were swirling, but now they are no more. Now they're saying, who doubted? While it was good for the people to now finally be on board with the leadership that God has given them in their zeal, though, they are forgetting that they were uh, they were likely some of the same people doubting Saul's kingship to begin with. They were doubting his validity in the beginning. So how does this relate to Christ and seeing him as the rightful king of kings and the impact this has on our kingdom. I want you to first notice the zeal the Israelites had for their king. When the scales fall off of our eyes and we realize that Jesus is that worthy king that we have been longing for, we absolutely should be excited. It is good to be excited to see Jesus as king. We should be We should be ready to go. And we should see just how ridiculous it was to deny his lordship. 
When we first see Christ as king and it becomes so clear to us that in the beginning God created the heavens and earth and then man sinned and God loved us and he sent us a savior. It is so profound yet so simple. It it seems like it should have been obvious all along. How did I not see it all around me? Scripture says that it is the fool who says there is no God. So it's good to have an understanding of what it is and to see that it was foolish to think otherwise. What's not good is to take that as far as the Israelites did and many others do. There's a modern term for what I'm about to allude to here called cage stage Christianity. You see, the Israelites were now ready to put to death those who spoke against the king, but they're forgetting that they weren't showing any confidence in the king before this moment either. Cage stage Christians see the beauty and the grace of Christ their king, but then allow the flesh they live in to misuse their newfound confidence in Christ. The term cage stage is a metaphorical term. It's suggesting that during this phase, individuals are are so argumentative and confrontational. They often lack tact in the way that they uh, speak with others, patience when they're speaking to others. The name cage stage implies that they would be better off kept in a cage Right now until they get past their uh, their pride in that moment. You might say, well, why not, Pastor Brad? Why don't you just let me at them? Why don't I just go out there and burn it all down for Jesus? Come on, let me at them. Well, my answer to that is twofold. First, refer back to the sermon last week. Our weapon is not uh, in this spiritual warfare. Our weapon is not physical. It is proclaiming the word of God. We don't have to be brash. We can be simply confident in the word of God. My second reason for why we don't just go burn it down is this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-10. through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the king of God. And if I were to stop right there, you would think, oh, let me at him. But then read this. As such were some of you. But you are washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. As such were some of you. That list of people that we want to tear apart, we want to put in their place, we want to tear down. The Israelite people were ready to put them to death. Scripture reminds us that was us. We look out at the world knowing spiritual warfare is real. We have a a job to do. Christ is king. We are his soldiers. I'm marching in the Lord's army. But we also know that it is only by the grace of God that we have come to know such things. Let's look at how how Israel's new king reacts to their calls for violence in verse 13. Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. The second response that we have to seeing the king as worthy is resting in the work of the Lord to bring salvation. 
resting in the work of the Lord to bring salvation. Saul looks at the people of Israel and in different terms, he says, hey, cool your jets. (laughs) Relax. There are two aspects of Saul's declaration that we need to realize as we seek to have a greater understanding of the uh, resting in the work of the Lord's salvation. First, it should be noted that Saul culturally had every right to smite any of those people who were set against him. As king, it was proper and valid for him to do so. It would have been well within his power to put their heads on a literal platter. In fact, if you're familiar with the story of John the Baptist, you may remember that he was imprisoned by King Herod. Now, King Herod had an even lower position than our King Saul does in our text this morning. Uh, King Herod was given his position by the Roman Empire that ruled over the land. King Saul was given this position by God himself. Nonetheless, at the request of King Herod's wife through her daughter, King Herod had John the Baptist beheaded simply because John the Baptist didn't like their marriage. It was well within the king's right to take the life of his subject deemed to be in opposition, deemed to be in treason. For Saul to show restraint in this section here would have been a great expression of grace towards the people. It was appropriate for him to go to all the people and to put them to death. That was within his rights. The second aspect that we must note in Saul's declaration is where the guy who just led the victory by all accounts, where he assigns the credit for the salvation. He's the king. He just spurred the country into action. He assured their victory, right? No. The Lord has worked salvation in Israel. It was by the providence of God that Saul came in from the field with the oxen at just the right time to see the distress of the people. It was by the providence of God that the message that uh, that Saul sent out through the rest of the land was heard and received to bring in the army. It was by the providence of God that the Ammonites gave the Israelites and Jabesh-Gilead enough time to call in their Savior. And it was by the providence of God that the battle was won. The Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Through Saul's actions in Israel, Israel is instructed to take rest in the work of the Lord to bring salvation. So once more, we're going to be asking this question. How does this apply to those who rightly see Jesus as the worthy king? Well, first, we understand that Jesus, Jesus, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, as the one to whom and from whom and for whom all things were made. As that sovereign, he has every right to punish those who are in denial of him. I am by no means opposed to living in a democracy. You know, it's cool. We got election day coming up here in just a a couple days. But in some ways, us being in this cultural position has diminished our understanding of the rights and the powers of a monarch. We don't really think about things in in a monarchy. While there are abuses of power all around us and every earthly monarch will prove themselves to fail in some sort of way, Christ 
is the monarch who reigns forever and perfectly executes justice every single time. There is not an abuse of power when you are the ultimate source thereof. And you're also the source of supreme justice. The entire concept of right and wrong written into humanity comes from being made in the image of God, the perfect arbiter of justice. So I say that to say that Christ as the sovereign, as that arbiter of justice, as the very standard of righteousness, Christ has every right to justly destroy those who are against him. It's a treasonous act against the king when we work against him in his kingdom, when we sin against him. But in his great grace, Christ extends mercy where punishment would be appropriate. Even as Christ was nailed to the cross, he looked down at those scoffers, at those mockers, making fun of his condition, and he said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Any grace, any withholding of judgment we receive from the Lord is just that, it is grace. It is unmerited favor. We are sinners in the hands of a mighty God, of a just God, of a holy God. He has every right to do with us what he pleases, which is what makes the second aspect of this verse all the more beautiful. Credit for salvation goes to him. Credit for salvation goes to the Lord. Salvation is the work of the Lord. Did any believer in this room live a perfectly righteous life? Did any believer in this room die on a cross? Did any believer in this room rise up on the third day by the glory of the Father? Of course not. Salvation is a work of God given as a gift from God. None of us has room to boast or to feel superior when we understand all the credit, all the glory for being reconciled to God goes right back to God. There's only one mediator and it ain't me. It's Jesus Christ. And from there, salvation continues to be a work of God. He's invited us into that work, but he's still the engine powering it all along. His spirit grows us in knowledge and understanding of his word. His, his word is what we proclaim to the lost. We might plant seeds of truth, but the seed we plant is from him. And he's the one that does all the growing of the seed. It's not originating to us in any ways. All the glory of salvation goes to God for salvation is the work of the Lord. We rest in the work of the Lord to bring salvation. Notice, though, I did not say that we go comatose in the work of the Lord to bring salvation. He has invited us into this work. May we join in with vigor while peacefully knowing it's God that brings the growth. That's where we want to be strategically faithful in what we're doing as a church. We want to be spreading the gospel. We want to be telling people, knowing that God works through us and he's given all the glory through us. We better move on or we're not going to finish. Look at verse 14. Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. The third response 
to rightly seeing the king as worthy is healthy community. Healthy community. Samuel is the judge and the prophet, the spiritual leader in Israel, and he sees the passion of the people and directs them now to renew the kingdom. Renewing the kingdom is an interesting phrase. There's some uh, interesting thoughts on the meaning of that verse. I'll go into a little bit of it, but I'd like you just to look that up on your own if you're interested in it. Uh, I want to simply present you with the interpretation that best matches the context of the situation in the surrounding text here. Renewing the kingdom is talking about the Israelites coming together with a shared understanding that this nation of Israel is ultimately ruled by God. They are coming together with that understanding. They've seen the work of the earthly King Saul sent to them by the heavenly King God and Revival, rededication, renewal, whatever you want to call it, is spreading across the country. Samuel is directing the nation to understand where it has come from, the the provision of the Lord, and then to publicly celebrate that as a community. To do so, they go to Gilgal, the place where Joshua first brought the people into Israel, into the promised land. So once more, let's ask ourselves, how does this apply to those who rightly see Jesus as worthy king when we are unified in a shared understanding and seeing the worthiness of Christ as king we are united as his people when we see the worthiness of Christ to be served and the glory of the father to extend to us salvation we cannot help but be renewed It is the outcome. You may say to me this morning, Pastor Brown, I just don't feel it. I don't feel like being part of the church. Those people there get on my nerves. The pastor talks with his hands too much. I can't get into the Bible study with that baby making all the noise in the front row. If you find yourself tempted to say those kind of things, allow me to ask you this morning, Where are you looking? What are you seeing? Where's your focus? I can almost certainly say it isn't your king. If you are so caught up in everything going on around you that you look away from your king, I'm just going to say it. That's a personal problem. Too often. We get caught up gazing all around us when we should be looking at the same king giving him glory together. When the people of God are in one accord in their appreciation for the God who sent them their king, there is renewal in the land. I've talked about this a long time. We've been looking at revitalization in the church, right? It doesn't start with bringing up a a white tent. It doesn't start with a worship band. It doesn't start with bringing in a revival. It starts with looking to the glory of the king together. When we do that, there's renewal in the church house. There's renewal in the kingdom. When the people of God understand That Jesus is the king who saved them and is worthy to be served. They're not angry with their co-heirs. They bear with them. They put up with them, right? They forgive them. 
When our eyes are fixed upon our king, we don't get distracted by the nonsense of the fading flesh. We are consumed by eternal glory. That'll preach, y'all. May we today, church, have our collective gaze set upon our king in our church dedicated to giving him glory. Let's look at one more response. Verse 15. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. In the final verse of our section this morning, we see the fourth response to those who rightfully see the king as worthy. They rejoice. They rejoice. The first part of this verse is where the debate about what kingdom renewal means. Some take it to mean that Saul wasn't actually uh, made to be king until this moment, even though we had already looked at that. They, they look at it as a contradiction to what you read in verse 10. But what I believe is the key phrase that refutes that argument and really helps us understand what's going on here is that it says, now they made Saul king before the Lord. They made Saul king before the Lord. If you were to look back at chapter 10, the people there shout, long live the earthly king. Long live Saul the king. But after Samuel then tries to bring the Lord into the conversation, he starts talking about the, the, the uh, way to glorify God as king and how he'll treat the people that way. People start doubting the king once God was brought into the conversation in chapter 10. Here, the glory is given to the Lord and those doubts don't follow in the text. Instead, what follows from dedicating Saul as king before the Lord, what follows from that are peace offerings given to God in celebration of the victory that just occurred. And then that last phrase, that sweet phrase, Saul and all the men of Israel rejoice. This time, after dedicating before the Lord, instead of doubting, there's rejoicing. The consequence of sin in the land of Israel would return later on down the road. But in this sweet phrase at the conclusion of our time here this morning, at least, we see people simply rejoicing for the greatness of the one true God. What a picture. How does this relate to those who now see Jesus as the worthy king of kings? When we understand that Christ is king, we may still go through hard times, but we can rejoice. We can be glad because our God has saved us. He has given us ultimate peace. Also want to mention something that we would do well to consider. Notice in this verse here, the Israelites made peace offerings. There's a few different types of sacrifices and offerings shown in the uh, Old Testament. A, a sin offering was given for the need of purification. 
That's what we were really alluding to when we were looking about how Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, offered his life to make us pure, to save us. That, that, that's a sin offering that Christ made on the cross. You can see in Hebrews chapter 9, we're not going to go there right now, but you can make a note if you want to. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that Christ is the perfect sacrifice who cleanses all who believe in him, reconciling us to God. Christ is the sin offering. The peace offering, though, is a different kind of offering. The peace offering wasn't to bring purification or it wasn't because of the sin that it was given. But rather, a peace offering was an expression of thanks from the Israelites to God. This meal affirmed the relationship between the the worshiper, God, and and the community of believers. It's known as a sacrifice of well-being or a a thanksgiving offering. Here's what I want us to know. It's so beautiful when you put this all together. We cannot, will not, never will be able to make our own sin offering. Nothing was ever good enough in the Old Testament. That's why they had sin offerings year after year, time after time, again and again with bulls and doves and all that. You can go through the list. But Christ is the perfect sin offering and gives purification to all who believe in him. But I do think for a moment we should consider the peace offering. Think about it. Sacrificing our lives. Not to earn purification before the Lord. Not to obtain our own righteousness. But because we have received it. Because we have seen the worthiness of Christ as king. Because we desire to honor and to serve our sovereign, our lives become a peace offering. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Church, may we understand the peace that God has given us, the purification God has given us through Jesus Christ. And in response, not to earn it, but in response, offer our lives as a living sacrifice to him. Rejoicing in his glory. As we wrap things up this morning, Saul showed a whole lot of actually really good qualities as a king in our text today. Unfortunately for Israel, Saul was a man. He wouldn't always stay magnanimous. But as we've been relating this story to Christ's kingdom, we need to know that where Saul will get off course down the road, Christ never does. He is worthy to be king. He is worthy to be your king. He was worthy yesterday. He's worthy today. And he'll continue to be worthy tomorrow. While Saul was but a man, Christ is the God man. And in his divinity, he is never changing. He is always worthy. The question this morning is, do you see him as worthy? Do you see the foolishness 
of rejecting him for so long? Do you desire to rest in his finished work? Do you want to be a part of his growing community and kingdom? Do you rejoice in Christ the King? If so, praise be to God because he's done a mighty work on your heart. Through the proclamation of his word. When we realize that Christ is worthy and desire to serve him, we are called to make that known before others. If you never made that known before, don't wait. Do so today. May all of us make him known in all aspects of our lives. He's not just worthy of your praise on Sunday morning. He's worthy each and every moment of each and every day. May we give God glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word, Lord. I pray that you were glorified, that your word was professed without, uh, without distraction, without uh, uh, muddying of the waters, Lord. And that as a group, we would seek to humbly, joyfully serve you seeing you as the king, the sovereign holds us in your hands. Our sin is treason and yet you extend mercy. You've given the debt we owe for our treasonous acts and laid that upon Jesus Christ on the cross, providing purification and then in his resurrection, assuring us of glorification. Lord, may we give you all the glory. May you be calling sinners home. Be with us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Durban Memorial Baptist Church Podcast. If you want to find out more about our church, you can check out www.durbanchurch.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can give us a call or text to 859-813-0369. Also, you can shoot us an email at brad at durbanchurch.org. Have a wonderful day and God bless.